So our reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Thank you very much. Uh, Let's pray as we start looking at God's word together. Father, we thank you that you inspired these words. We thank you that you sent Jesus. And we pray now that your Holy Spirit will help us to hear these words and to hear them as good news for us today. Amen. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, It's not so far in terms of as the crow flies, but it's a bit zigzaggy getting across uh, the country and a bit bumpy on the road. So I'm glad I made it safely. Um, We we looked at John 17 as a church uh, just as we started this new academic year. So last month, um, we started looking at this. This is the start of the year. Um, Jesus praying, and therefore a model prayer. Uh, And I don't know if, if you ever have this thought that some prayers are kind of better than other prayers. So imagine you hear someone praying, Lord, help me to do well in my exams so everyone knows how smart I am. Or another person prays, God, please help me to win this football match so the girls will be impressed. Or maybe the Sunday morning prayer for for parents, Father, please help my kids behave in church so I look like a good parent. And all these prayers, it's kind of okay, it's okay to ask for everyday things, you know, exams and and sports and and children's behaving, but uh, there's a sort of second bit to it in all of them, which is so that other people will notice that I'm good. Make me look great. And we probably think that's not such a good prayer, not such a fantastic prayer. And then we read Jesus' prayer, and the first thing he says is, make the sun look great, glorify the sun, make me look great amazing. And so that's what we're going to unpack this morning. We want to say, well, why is it right for Jesus to say, make me look amazing, when um, it's not okay, or not quite so okay for us to say, make me look great? Why is it right for Jesus to make his top priority, the thing he's praying for, Uh, On the night before he is killed, the thing uh, that comes first in the longest prayer we have of Jesus is, make me look great. Father, glorify me. So let's uh, read verse 1 again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And so the first reason why it's right for Jesus to ask for glory, he's not being selfish, is that somehow his glory will also glorify the Father. In some way, when Jesus is seen as great by everyone, everyone will also see that his Father is great. 
And to, to see how that works, we're just going to have to take a step back and think about this word glory. It's a Bible word, so we probably use it in church quite a lot. Um, but when we look to everyday English, where are we going to have to go? We're going to have to go to sport, aren't we? Because sport is where we talk about glory. Um, so there's a headline there from earlier this year. Um, England women on the verge of historic glory. Um, you have to get that glory in there in anticipation. Um, if they had won the last match of the World Cup, they would have had glory. Their names would have been written in, in there forever as the team that was best in the world at this point. Sports teams get glory when they win a tournament. They, they become famous and known as excellent at their sport, as the best. And that, that combination of, of fame and accomplishment, being known for your excellence, is actually a pretty good starting point for thinking about this word glory in the Bible. Um, but it has limitations. And the limitation is this. In, in sporting terms, only one team gets the glory. It's competitive. I'm asking for glory for me. I want my football team to win, and that means I want everyone else's football team to lose. Um, and so we, we see a sort of um, uh, fame economy going on. Um, you've, got, you've got me, your person, you've got other people. What happens when one person becomes great? Well, they become bigger, brighter, more obvious above everyone else, and everyone else is sort of made smaller compared to them, less significant. Our society is a, uses fame, glory, as a way to gain power or wealth. Because when you become famous, whether by winning competitions and awards or creating a hit YouTube video or building a brand and a large Twitter following, um, it all converts into power to push the things you want to push, or wealth, as you use your platform to get advertising revenue and sell things. And so what we see in this world is that, by and large, those who gain glory uh, have to push others down to do so. They're competing with others, and they then use that glory selfishly for their own ambition and purposes. And so that means when Jesus says, glorify your son, it immediately sounds to us like he's being a bit selfish, But Jesus can ask for glory for himself because in some way it will bring glory to the Father. And that's because of the nature of God's glory. Uh, God's glory turns up scattered through the Old Testament. Um, But in Exodus 33, Moses asks to see God's glory. And that gives us, I think, the core meaning of glory in the Bible. Uh, Moses has seen amazing miracles. He's, He's seen the burning bush. Um, he's seen the plagues on Egypt. He's seen the Red Sea parted. He is at Mount Sinai where the, the cloud has come down on the top of the mountain um, and it looks like a consuming fire. So he has seen a lot of glory so far and he still says, I want to see more. I, I, I need to see more of your glory. And what God does in response is that, that therefore the epitome of glory in the Old Testament. And so what we see is God God responds by saying, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll have be gracious and I'll have show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. And so we, we actually get a sort of definition of glory, which is not the power we often think of, but, but glory is the revelation of God's presence and perfection. 
which, as you'll see if you ever get a chance to read on in Exodus 34, when, when God does turn up, Moses immediately praises God. So God's glory is the revelation of God's presence. Uh, God's always there because he's God, but the glory moments are the moments when we suddenly realize God is there. We see God is there. We understand him being there. That's a moment of glory. And his perfection, his character in particular. And so if God's glory is the revelation of God's presence and perfection leading to praise, we then come back to John 17 and we can see how Jesus' glory leads to the Father's glory. So Jesus is the God who is glorious and deserves praise, and he is the one who reveals the Father. So John 17 and verse 5 tells us, Jesus is not just another human being who is competing with God. So if we say to God, make us the most glorious thing in the universe, we're competing with God. But Jesus is already God. Verse 5, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The only thing that exists before the world is God. So Jesus is saying, I am God. And I was with the Father. The Son was with the Father before the creation of the world and enjoyed glory. Before there was any universe, God existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. And in the triune life of God, there's one great glory that they share. Each divine person, equally glorious. And they're each known by each other perfectly. Each is infinitely perfect. The Son receives glory from the Father and in turn glorifies the Father. So when we, when we say, I want to be great, when we say, I want the glory, we're usually being glory thieves. We're usually trying to take more glory than we actually deserve as human beings. And in particular, we're trying to take glory away from God. That's the essence of sin take glory away from God and to ourselves. We're glory thieves. Jesus is glorious already. He's the the glorious life giver. He's come as the one who, when he asks for glory, he's only asking for what's his own right, what he had before the creation of the world. And he's asking for glory as part of the plan that all the divine persons be glorified. The Son is the eternal word of the Father, So that, as John 1 puts it, we we can only know the Father through the Son. And so his business on earth was to make the Father known, and he's done it, verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So think of it like this. Imagine, Imagine if God the Father had sent God the Son to earth, and no one had looked at Jesus. No one had noticed him. If he died and been forgotten, then no one would know the Father. It's not that the more Jesus is glorified, the less the Father is. It's that if Jesus isn't glorified, the Father isn't glorified. But the more that people look at Jesus and say, that is what God is like, it's beautiful, it's amazing, they also get to know that's what his Father is like. And so the more Jesus is glorified, the more the Father is glorified. The fact that half the world's population today knows something about Jesus means that they can look at Jesus and know the Father. Lots of people can know God the Father. You can know God the Father, even for the first time, by looking at Jesus and seeing, 
what God the Father is like. And this, this is why Jesus isn't being selfish when he prays for his glory. He is offering everyone a chance to know God the Father. Maybe it's a bit like when we were all locked down and communicating online. I'm not quite sure how you did it. We used Zoom a lot. And um, uh, in that setting, the only way to see your parents or your friends far away was, was through a screen. And if you, if you turned away from the screen, you stopped seeing the person. And you might go, well, I want to see the person in the flesh. Well, I'm not allowed at your house, so sorry. Um, it's a little bit like that. God the Father is in heaven. He's invisible to us. But in Jesus, it's like you get the screen where you can see what the Father is like. And there's no other way to do it. So when Jesus prays for his own glory, he's not selfish. He's not trying to push the Father out the spotlight. He's praying for the mission that the Father gave him. That everyone would see and admire him so that they would see and love God the Father. Jesus' glory reveals God's powerful presence in the world and the perfection of God, because Jesus is the Son who shows people the Father. So, he's not selfish, because he makes the Father glorious as well. Secondly, we see Jesus is not selfish to ask for glory, because his glory is displayed at the hour of the cross. So, back to to verse 1. Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And the, the hour in John is significant. Um, it's a marker for the mission. So when Jesus' mother comes to him at the start of the gospel, at the wedding in Cana in John 2, and says, please deal with the, the wine running out situation, Jesus' response is, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In John 7 and John 8, when Jesus' opponents try to seize him and kill him, they cannot lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then in John 12, just days before his death, something changes. In John 12 and verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The time has come. The hour of glory is coming. What is the hour of glory going to come uh, be like, given that Jesus has already turned water into wine and healed the lame man and the blind man and fed thousands and even raised Lazarus from the dead? What is the hour of glory going to look like? Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The hour of glory for Jesus is the hour of death, the hour that will look like a seed being thrown into the ground and forgotten, but it springs up and brings an eternal harvest. The hour of glory for Jesus looks like him dying on the cross and being raised up afterwards. And so no wonder Jesus says in verse 27 of chapter 12, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Uh, when, when we human beings ask for glory, we're generally saying, make my life be a, a trajectory of ever greater success. Make me someone who passes exams well, does well at sports, uh, gets a good job, 
gets a good wife, gets a nice home, has good health, gets good pub, a good career and good public influence, and all just smoothly upwards. That, that's kind of what we mean when we talk about glory. Jesus asks for glory that means he'll die on the cross. Our glory-seeking tends to be selfish. Jesus' glory-seeking is giving. In this dying, he will achieve the Father's mission, and he will make the Father known. It's on the cross that you see the presence of God in the very depths of human misery. You see, we naturally think of God as the one who turns up when things are going well. God God is with us when things are going well. God is with us on the mountaintops. He shares in our human triumphs, but he leaves us alone in our misery. That's kind of how human beings naturally think. You look at the gods of the Greeks and the Romans. They're, They're the gods of triumph. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, and particularly in his death on the cross, we see a God who is with us in the depths. Do you feel overlooked and abandoned? Jesus' friends abandoned him. His students abandoned him. And he hangs on the cross between two criminals he doesn't know, lonely. Do you feel like injustice has robbed you of opportunity and hope? Like you are oppressed by those who have power? Jesus was arrested and tried by the Jewish secular and religious authorities and sentenced to death by an unjust Roman judge. He knows what injustice is like. Do you feel that your body is weak, helpless, a source of pain rather than health? Jesus' body took whips and crown of thorns before being nailed to the cross to suffocate slowly to death. While he was hung there on the cross, there was no pain relief, only the reality that his body kept him alive to suffer more. Whatever is shameful, whatever is painful, whatever disturbs us, On the cross, we see God is really there with us in those moments. And so God's glory is seen in the darkest moment in human history. The real God is not only a God of the triumphs, but a God who is with us in the pits of human existence. He's there. The presence of God is revealed at the cross. And he shows out his character on the cross. In the darkness of utter human rebellion against God, of injustice and cruelty, God shows out his perfect character. And it comes out most clearly against that dark backdrop. We see, for example, God's perfect justice at the cross. Human beings tend to judge their enemies very harshly, strangers impartially, and friends and family leniently. Across the world, the the children of the rich and powerful get away with more. They even escape prison for crimes. But God shows his justice is truly impartial because when his own son is bearing sin, he punishes his son to the full. That the sins are not covered up. There is full justice. The wrath of God falls on every sin as much as it deserves, even when it's being borne by the precious Son of God. 
every evil deed gets fully punished by the just God. But of course, Jesus had never done anything wrong. Read in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Instead, on the cross, we see what's going on is God's love and mercy being magnified. God the Son took that sin upon himself, sin from us. He takes the punishment for our sin, the, the deathly consequences of sin. And so on the cross we see love to the maximum. There is a sense in which, in which nowhere else in history or even eternity will we see the love of God more clearly than here. The one who was sinned against, the worst, the one who all humanity has rejected, our God, says the very people who have sinned and do not deserve rescue by paying the maximum possible price. The love of God cannot be seen more clearly than by gazing at the cross. If you feel worthless or too ashamed to approach God, if you think he won't be interested in you, look at the cross to see the value that God puts on you, his love for you. The cross glorifies God by showing his justice. The the cross glorifies God by showing his love. The cross glorifies God by showing his wisdom. Now, the cross is not human wisdom. If you were to to have a life coach giving you advice for life and um, their advice led to you being hung up on a cross, uh, you're not able to ask for a refund, but I think your family might. Uh, They might feel like that was bad advice, that wasn't wise. But the cross is God's wisdom. Because through the cross, God can be both just and merciful, both holy and loving. This this explains why Christianity is able to handle something Islam can't. Islam says God is all just, and Islam says God is all merciful. Those are are both in the 99 names for God. But justice is giving people what they do deserve, and mercy is giving people what they don't deserve or not giving them what they deserve, depending on how you look at it. And in that way, there there is no way in Islam for God to be both perfectly just and perfectly merciful. But on the cross, where God himself substitutes himself for us and takes our sin and the judgment that, that, that our sin deserves on himself, therefore God can be just to the full, punishing every sin perfectly, and merciful to the full, accepting every single person who trusts in Jesus as forgiven. And so God's wisdom is displayed on the cross. He brings together what seems opposites and shows that he can be both to the full. The hour of glory is the hour of the cross where we see God's presence and perfection in a way that we can't anywhere else. But I think we can see that Jesus isn't being selfish in the hour of the cross. Well, one last thing to think about as we think about why Jesus isn't selfish to ask for his glory. God's glory is the revealing of his presence and perfection leading to praise. Jesus glorifies the Father. His hour of glory is the cross. And it's really for our good because it gives us eternal life. Let's read that prayer again in verse, uh, from verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. 
since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Jesus says, I've come, I've been given authority to give eternal life to people. And eternal life is knowing the Father and the Son. And that's why Jesus praying for his glory is good news. Remember, we're selfish glory thieves, seeking our own glory at the expense of others. Jesus says, I want to be glorious because I want people to know me and my Father. And in that knowing, they will have life. Eternal life is knowing the eternal living one, God himself. You can only come to know the Father through Jesus. You can only have eternal life by knowing the Father. And that's an important point. Maybe you're here as someone investigating Christianity. And you think, like, I quite like Jesus, and I really like the idea of eternal life, but I don't really understand why God says I have to repent and make Jesus Lord of my life. Like, God, aren't you being a bit selfish? Why can't you just give me eternal life as a gift without any of these conditions? And the mistake going on here is to think of eternal life a bit like an Amazon parcel. Now, when, when, when I order something on Amazon, what I want is for it to be delivered, and I want the delivery driver to go away, and I never want to speak to the seller, ever. That's part of the condition. That's what Amazon is, is doing. It provides me the service, the package, without the relationship. Of course, there are some other things where it doesn't work like that. Uh, And this is one of those things where you can't get the eternal life without the relationship because the eternal life is the relationship. Um, One way of thinking about it is that God is the fountain of life. Uh, He's the only fountain of life. And everywhere else, the further you go from him, you're going into the desert of death. And this fountain is, is freely offered to everybody. Everyone can drink from this fountain. But what you can't do is wander off into the desert and complain that you haven't got the fountain of life. You can't say, I'm thirsty, and it's the fountain's fault. Because the fountain of life is there, open to everyone. You just have to come to it. Or to put it back in these terms, you can't have eternal life without friendship with the eternal life giver. God the Father is the source of life and every good gift in this world, and is himself better than the gifts we have. That's important. There are lots of good things in this world, and maybe you really enjoy some of those good gifts, friendship and family, um, homes, beautiful uh, countryside, enjoying sports. Uh, There are so many good things to enjoy, but we need to remember that God himself is better than those. He invented those to be little tastes of his own goodness and life. And so there is no life to be found apart from God's. To be known by God and to know him, to be loved by God, is better than all that this world offers. Shakespeare, in Sonnet 29, imagines a life where his wealth and reputation are lost. But at the end of it, having complained, basically, for the whole poem, uh, he remembers his beloved. For thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings, that then I scorn to change my state with kings. Even in earthly terms, it's better to be loved than to achieve greatness as a king. And if that's true of earthly love, how much more true is it of God the Father's love? 
the infinite goodness of God, overflowing generosity, abounding love, the thing, the only thing that will satisfy our souls for eternity. And along with him, we will inherit all of creation. Life is found in knowing the eternal life giver. And we can only do that as we come to know Jesus, whom the Father has sent. So we need Jesus to be glorified. We need him to be seen. And we need to see his greatness as the Son of God who's come to rescue us. We need his reality and what he is like to be more often in our eyes than the logos of companies or the pictures of celebrities. We need God himself to enable us to see the glory of God in the face of Christ so that we know the Father and have eternal life. And this is also is what the world around us needs. Sometimes as churches we can, we can think that what we need to offer is what the world around us already wants, if I can put it that way. People like community, don't they? So we can offer some community. We've got a nice community. And, and people like music. We can do some good music. And people might want some moral guidance or some practical wisdom, and we can offer a bit of that. And people want something for the children, and we can offer a bit of that. But what everyone needs is eternal life. A restored relationship with God the Father through Jesus. And you see, we, we as human beings can organise a lot of the other stuff. But what, what we have to do most of all as churches is lift up Jesus as great and good. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. He will rescue people from all nations to know his Father. He will do that as he's glorified. And so we must glorify Jesus. The glory of Jesus is life for us. The more Jesus is glorified in the world, the more people can hear about him and receive eternal life. The more Jesus is glorified in our hearts and minds, the more we can enjoy eternal life now through knowing God the Father as our friend. And so I'm going to finish by praying for Jesus to be glorified. Let's pray. Father God, glorify your Son the Lord Jesus today. Help all we do as a church display Jesus and his death and resurrection for us. And by your spirit, enable everyone here to see Jesus more clearly and so to know you better. Fill our souls with your life by helping us to know you through Jesus. Amen.